This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. Migration between these two regions is seen as temporary, even if it often spans the entire productive life of the migrant. This temporariness has resulted in weakening of labor rights for migrant workers. Worse, their conditions of returning home are full of insecurities and lack income opportunities. Hi, I'm Namrita Daniel from the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. Over the coming weeks, we will speak with scholars and activists working on women's labor migration from Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal and India. Welcome to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. Hello everyone, for our episode on theme, Remittances and Social Security, we have with us Belisha Veera Ratne, Research Fellow, Head of Migration and Urbanization Policy Research, Institute of Policy Studies, Sri Lanka. Thank you, Belisha, for accepting our invitation and taking out the time to speak to us. So let me just start by asking you, keeping the context of Sri Lanka in mind, that how do countries of origin benefit from remittances and what impact it has on their economy? And how do countries of destination benefit from the labor of migrant workers? Okay, Namrata, before I go on to answer your questions, let me just give you a little bit of a context. Uh, Remittances is a phenomenon tied very closely with labor migration. So in the Sri Lankan economy, labor migration is an important component. So along with that, uh, we get a large inflow of remittances to Sri Lanka. Um, large in the sense it's large to Sri Lanka, but when you look at other countries, maybe uh, relatively it not, might not be so large. But at least in the context of Sri Lanka, it's a very important inflow of foreign exchange. During the uh, last couple of years, remittances has been ranging about um, 6.8 to 7.2 billion US dollars in 20. Uh, 19 before the pandemic, it was 6.9 billion US dollars, the annual remittances. And in 2020, very interestingly, we had a 5.8% growth, we can discuss about it later. It came to about 7.1 billion. So if you look at impact of remittances on the countries of origin, remittances play a very key role, both at the micro level as well as the macro level. Micro meaning at the household individual level, as well as the macro meaning the overall economy level. If we look at the household level, we see that uh, remittances is a very reliable mechanism to increase the household income. It is a very targeted income support mechanism to the households because it proceeds exactly to the household directly without any middleman directly to the household that needs it. And uh, because of such uh, targeted receipt of remittances, it has a capacity to improve the socio-economic status of the members of the household, especially when you get more income. It, if it is properly managed, it can lead to higher educational outcomes of the children or the family left behind, as well as higher health and nutritional outcomes, and overall uplift the socioeconomic status of the household that is receiving remittances. When it comes to the economy level, it plays a 
very key role, especially in the case of Sri Lanka. When we look at remittances, it accounts for about 5.8%, that's about 5.8% of the GDP during the last 10 year period, on average, about 5.8%. So it's a, it's a huge um, contribution to the Sri Lankan economy. And uh, remittances is the single largest foreign exchange earning category in the Sri Lankan balance of payment. Remittances can push on up to about 80% of this deficit, remittances alone. So therefore, remittances play, play a huge role in the Sri Lankan economy. When we look at remittances, it is also very key non-debt creating external finance mechanism because we don't have a payback condition or anything. It's Sri Lankan living or working abroad who's sending it. So in that way, also Sri, um, remittances make a huge contribution to the Sri Lankan economy. Overall, at the macro level, again, there are many development impacts of remittances. It um, contributes to the overall nutrition, health, and human capital development of the country when remittances are properly managed. Of course, there are caveats there. That is the impact of remittance on the countries of origin of the migrant workers. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Borisab Gerasimov. My short name is Bobby. I'm Sharmila Parmanand. We're from the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. In 2020, the UN Trafficking in Persons Protocol marked its 20th year. We attended some online events that marked this anniversary but noticed that women's organizations and service providers from the Global South were rarely invited to speak. So we decided to host online conversations which will present diverse opinions on the protocol, the anti-trafficking framework, and their implementation. These conversations assessed the protocol's impact on trafficked and exploited people over the last two decades, and then asked, how can we put the rights of migrants, sex workers, and marginalized groups at the center of our work? Our podcast series is called Looking Back, Looking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. You can listen to it here on Anchor or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back. This is the seventh episode of Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. Our guest is Dr. Belisha Veera Ratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. Now, when you look at the impact of labor migration on the countries of destination, we see that um, labor migration is a very good mechanism to balance the labor market um, situation in these countries of origin, especially the many of these countries of origin request or take up migrant workers based on the short-term or the medium-term labor market requirements. So migrant workers are capable of fulfilling these short-term labor requirements in the countries of destination. And most often, a lot of these countries of destination of Sri Lankan migrant workers, that is mainly the Middle East, they adopt a very temporary labor migration approach. So they address their short-term or medium-term labor market needs without long-term commitments to the migrants who are coming. So that is a very convenient way for the country of destination because they don't have a long-term commitment to take care of the migrant worker, but they just can get the benefit of their labor inputs to their economy. And then also this labor migration has a tendency to some countries uh, strategically target take in migrant workers in a way that will address their skills deficits. Certain skills are prioritized and they are taken into the country. And also certain countries prioritize their demographic deficits, certain age categories, 
especially when young people are in deficit in those countries, they try to take in a lot of young migrant workers so that their demographic deficit is also captured. So um, these are some of the ways in terms of the country's overall labor market requirement is conveniently balanced with this inward labor migration to these countries of destination. So those are the key implications. Thank you, Belisha. You've raised crucial points on the impact of remittances at the micro and macro levels in the country of origin. You highlighted an important point that there are no long-term plans or commitment for migrant workers in the country of destination. This despite the fact that Sri Lankan migrant workers support the Middle East countries' economies by filling up its labor deficit. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women is an alliance of more than 80 non-governmental organizations from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America and the Caribbean, and North America. GATW sees the phenomenon of human trafficking intrinsically embedded in the context of migration for the purpose of labor. To know more about the work of GATW, visit www.gaatw.org. Welcome back to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. Joining us in this episode is Dr. Belisha Veera Ratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. Let me just ask, when it comes to women's remittances, how much is that money being sent home and how is it being used by the families? Unfortunately, remittance data, at least in the case of Sri Lanka, cannot be disaggregated by the gender. Uh, so we do not know exactly at the macro level, at the overall economy level, how what proportion is sent by women. But we do have an understanding about the departure numbers of women. So uh, until from like 1988 to 2007, females accounted for the larger proportion of uh, annual departures of migration. But after 2007, female proportion has gone down. But still, females account for a larger number of uh, departures. So considering this important role played by female migrants in departure statistics, we would assume that in terms of remittance statistics also, they have a key role to play. So uh, even though I said we don't have a macro level understanding about precisely the proportion of remittances sent by women at a smaller survey level, survey data would show some understanding. In the literature also it shows that compared to men, women are more connected to the family left behind. So therefore they tend to, um, now we know most often um, men get higher wages than women. So despite this wage discrimination for women, women tend to send the same amount of remittances as men when it uh, comes to sending back to home. So this means that they send the same amount of remittances, the absolute value, but then when it comes to their earnings or wages, the proportion sent by women is much higher than what men send. So in one survey data, we saw that uh, female domestic workers send about 77% of their wages as remittances to Sri Lanka, but the relative amount sent by uh, other categories like drivers or male-dominated categories were much lower amounts, like in the 70% range, whereas female domestic workers sent about 77%. Women send significant large proportion of their monthly income or wages back to home. 
So what was the other question that you asked related to that about uh, how it's spent, right? How is it being spent? Okay. Normally, again, the survey data shows that when it comes to spending, majority of the remittances, now again, uh, this is uh, mostly uh, to overall remittances at the household level, but I would assume it's the same trend in terms of women's remittances also. So what is noted that majority is spent on day-to-day -day expenses. And then also a huge chunk is paid on uh, debt that was taken for migration or the debt that was there in the household before migration, which had prompted this migrant to go abroad and you know, improve the household financial situation. So uh, a large amount is spent on day-to-day -day expenses and debt financing. And then this shows that very little is saved or invested. So this leads to a problem of when you don't have savings or investments out of remittances, the moment the remittance stream stops, there will be a difficulty for the household because you don't have something saved up from remittances to improve the status of the household. The moment that inflow is cut down, then the household starts to suffer. So we have seen this in many cases in Sri Lanka where while the migrant worker is abroad, the household is kind of thriving. They are, you know, their level is good, their nutrition level is good, and they are kind of happy and they're having a good socioeconomic status. But the moment the migrant comes back, after about two, three months, it's difficult for them to sustain this lifestyle. So they, you know, go back to square one where they started the migration process. Or some people consider re-migration. They would migrate again so that this cycle continues and the household is kind of benefited and the migrant is sending the income. Um, there are cases, you few households, some households do a very methodical plan process where they save and invest and, you know, update the status of the household. But majority, we see that they have, at least majority in the lower skill levels, they have difficulties in terms of... Uh, coming out of their down situation that led to migration because these poor remittance management habits. So, Felicia, how much of that income from the remittances is being used for women's welfare or social security? Now, this is a very interesting question. Uh, let's talk about women's welfare first. Uh, when it comes to women's welfare, I don't think women consciously make investment or a savings, especially for their personal welfare. That is rarely done. What they do is they try to improve the socioeconomic status of the household. If that improves thereby, the woman's welfare is also increased once she comes back to the country, Sri Lanka. Uh, some migrant uh, females might save a little bit in the country of destination uh, while sending a majority home so that she has a little pot of money when she comes back. But that is not very large to improve her welfare. Among the complexities in women's labor migration is this wage discrimination. Thank you for pointing this out, Belisha, that women send the same amount of remittances as men do, despite this wage inequality. And unfortunately, the women workers' remittances are not used for their social welfare. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm Sharmila from the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women, or GATW. If you're enjoying Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, I'd like to invite you to another GATW podcast, Looking Back, Looking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. 
It's a podcast that features 11 advocates and activists calling for an anti-trafficking framework that puts human rights at the center of its work. Here's an excerpt from our first episode with Bandana Patanaik, International Coordinator of GATW. If we look at the trafficking protocol, the definition, the elements of trafficking are present in many stories of workers. If it is no longer an exceptional case, then we need to have much broader resistance mechanisms, much broader movements. We need people to work with, people who have worked on labor rights, people who are working with migrant workers, people who work with development issues, for example. The link to Looking Back, Looking Forward is in the description of this episode. Welcome back to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. This is our seventh podcast. The previous conversations tackled social and economic inclusion of women migrant workers in India and Nepal. Now we are talking about remittances and social security with our guest, Dr. Belisha Veera Ratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. So when it comes to social security, in Sri Lanka, there is no social security mechanism for migrant workers, women or men, a formal one. There had been previously, but right now there is nothing functioning properly. There is no proper way. There is a lot of discussion. There is a cabinet paper going through to introduce a social security kind of a contributory pension scheme. What happens is there is no way that a migrant worker has social security for her old age or once she stops working. So what we are planning to do, I am part of that committee that is producing this social security scheme. That what is planned here is to make a make it a contributory scheme where during the two years or whatever number of years that she's abroad, she will make a regular contribution or at least when she comes back sum. And then after a specified age limit, maybe 60 years, she can start uh, earning a pension uh, until her old age. And then this is the social security scheme in Sri Lanka. I would also like to highlight about the social security scenario when it comes to countries of destination. Very um, sad to say, but most often these uh, contributions to social security schemes in the countries of destination are not portable. What happens is the migrant worker pays it there, and maybe if she can obtain it in the country of destination, she will get it. Otherwise, when she comes back, she just cannot access it. And then I have a very classic example where even after contributing, people are not able to access it. This is in the case of Israel. In Israel, there is a requirement for all migrant workers and their employers to contribute for a social security scheme. So all Sri Lankan workers do contribute to this and their employers also do. And the requirement of this social security scheme is that the worker has to contribute for 10 years continuously to obtain the benefit. But the interesting part here is Sri Lankan migrant workers are taken to Israel for a maximum of five years. They cannot stay more than five years. Now, Sri Lankan migrant workers are contributing for five years and they come back and there is no legal mechanism for them to obtain this benefit. They're just contributing money to the Israeli government. Because after 10 years only you can retrieve it, but Sri Lanka migrant workers are not allowed to stay beyond five years. So there is no way of getting it. So this is one example of how these social security schemes penalize migrant workers. This is um, this is just one case. There are so many other situations. So it is very important to 
make the social security schemes uh, accessible not only contribution is important the access is more important i think and then also to make it portable even after the migrant worker returns to the country of uh, origin there has to be some mechanisms for them to access it hassle free so they are without you know once you are in a country of origin it's hard to navigate things in the country of destination so there has to be some free flowing mechanism that makes it easy to access Portability of social security and benefits has been gaining grounds in discussion about South Asian migrant workers rights. We've heard Shakirul of Okab Bangladesh mention this in a sixth episode. And now in Sri Lanka, civil society has apparently been recommending the same for its migrant workers. This is Migrant Rights Migrant Realities. a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bobby from the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. In the year 2000, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the protocol to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. The protocol obliges states to criminalize human trafficking, prosecute traffickers and assist victims. 20 years later, it is one of the most ratified UN instruments, but it has also attracted considerable criticism for leading to serious human rights violations of trafficked persons and other vulnerable groups. In 2020, GW created a podcast to mark the anniversary of the UN Trafficking Protocol. It's called Looking Back, Looking Forward: The UN Trafficking Protocol at 20. In this podcast, my colleague Sharmila and I speak with advocates and activists and reflect on the successes, failures and opportunities for the protocol and for the anti-trafficking framework in general. Check out the link to our podcast in the description of this episode. Thanks. Welcome back. This Migrant Rights Migrant Realities episode discusses remittances and social security of migrant workers. We are joined by Dr. Belisha Viraratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. When it comes to control over resources and financial decision making, how much control do women have over their earnings in countries of origin and destination? Um in the country of destination, how much they control they have over earnings is um, largely they will have a contract which will say how much they have to earn. uh but then again sometimes there this this trend of double contract you sign one contract in sri lanka but when you go to the country of destination you are given a brand new contract and you have to sign and at that point i don't think the migrant worker has much of a say or control about her, how much is going to make rather than just signing it so it depends if you get a good employer you might have the same contract going but otherwise there might be variations and then also in the country of destination i don't think the migrant worker has sufficient bargaining power to have a say or control about her, her wages but once the wages come into her hand i think she has full control of it in the country of destination but what happens is most of these females send a, send a large proportion of their income to sri lanka so after it reaches sri lanka 
then she has very little control over it because it's hard to do remote controlling of financial uh, management. This is because the lack of a proper remittance management plan within the household. It is not even though it sounds like a technical thing, it is not. It's just that the family members have to have a good understanding. Okay, this one, this female member in the household is going abroad due to our financial reasons. So let's save the money, use the money in a methodical way, save some, use it in a wise way, use it on agreed expenditures, not on lavish, on, you know, conspicuous consumption. So if such an arrangement is there, then the migrant also will have some control or understanding about how remittances are spent. But what happens is most often uh, households do not have such a plan, especially in the lower income levels. So then what happens is, it is very sad to see that in many cases when this regular stream of remittances start taking place and start regularizing to the household, the family left behind becomes very comfortable with this free flow of money because they do not see the hard work and the sacrifices the female migrant worker is making in the country of destination to spend this money. For them, it's like a, at the end of the month, there is a free flow of income coming into the household. There are many reported instances where the husbands would start drinking or smoking and wasting the money or gambling. Or there are instances of illicit affairs with other women and spend it on them. The female migrant worker is unaware of these activities at home and she will continue to send money thinking that there's some of it is saved or some of it is invested to build their house or things like that. But, but in reality, it might not be taking place in the household. There are cases where uh, migrant workers have been under the impression that their house is built to a certain extent, but when they come back, they will realize, oh my God, all the remittances that I have sent is wasted. There is no house anymore. And I've, I've just spent two years for nothing, for not a valid outcome at the end. But then there are cases we have seen that how certain household members who have used it very wisely, have built houses, have made sure that the children will continue their education and they have invested in a vehicle or a business and that is a nice laid out plan to continue to make uh, income out of this two-year migration process and the related remittances. And then also we have seen sometimes when there is this uh, regular flow of income coming, household members who have had a job has started kind of relaxing and not continuing the job in technical terms it is placing a higher value for leisure and just uh, chilling out at home because there is a regular flow of income. Now what has happened is that the household income has gone down because the worker who was working in Sri Lanka has stopped working but only the remittance income is coming. So the total income in the household has gone down. So that is why it is very key to have a good understanding within the family members about how the remittances are going to be spent, what is our target, how much are we going to save and how is it going to be contributed to the household economy and how much of a contribution will the uh, adult member back in Sri Lanka will also make towards the household income. So such an understanding is important. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women is an alliance of more than 80 non-governmental organizations from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America and the Caribbean, and North America. 
Gat W sees the phenomenon of human trafficking intrinsically embedded in the context of migration for the purpose of labor. To know more about the work of Gat W, visit www.gaatw.org. Welcome back. This is the seventh episode of Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. Our guest is Dr. Belisha Veera Ratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. Thank you, Belisha. And I think you raised these points before that uh, Sri Lanka does not have social security mechanisms for both men and women. It's a big challenge for migrant workers. Um, so if we look at like how can we factor in in terms of uh, welfare provision, social security methods in the bilateral agreements, in the memorandum of uh, understandings and workers' contracts between countries of origin and destination? I think that is a very good point, Namrata, because uh, now in terms of migrant workers, there is a very important role to be played by countries of destination. Right now, they are playing a limited role. We have seen it during the pandemic. It was there before, but the pandemic highlighted it very well. There are assimilation issues for migrant workers while they are in the country of destination. Because the countries of destination are not doing their due part in terms of allowing migrant workers to assimilate in the country of destination. These are the reasons that lead to social welfare deficits or you know access to care deficits. And then in terms of return and reintegration also we saw how much the countries of origin were struggling to bring their workers down, how much they're struggling to reintegrate them in, during this pandemic. But we also saw what a sort of a small role the countries of destination played in terms of return and reintegration. That should not be the case. There should be a responsibility between the countries of destination and origin both because especially when it comes to return and reintegration, even though it happens after the migrant arrives in the country of origin, the planning mechanism, the, the prep work has to go on from pre-departure to in-service in the country of destination to return. So countries of destination have a role to play. So therefore, I think um, harnessing the potential of bilateral agreements or MOUs are very important. But the thing is, often we have seen that these bilateral agreements or MOUs are signed in with a lot of fanfare. But it tends to be dusting in a shelf and not much is implemented out of it over the years. So there has to be some mechanism where the countries of destination origin both have a binding commitment. It's not just a written document only, it has to be implemented and there has to be some mechanism to revisit them, evaluate them, revise if required and kind of, you know, continuous evaluation process to make sure that it is implemented. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We'll be right back. Hi again, it's Sharmila. And Bobby. We're with the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, we hosted a series of conversations on the 20th anniversary of the UN Trafficking in Persons Protocol. If you're interested to know about the gains and losses of this United Nations instrument, this is the podcast for you. It takes a broad assessment of the protocol since it was adopted in 2000 and then takes a deep dive into the anti-trafficking work in countries like Brazil, Bulgaria, Colombia, India, Serbia, and the Philippines. So again, we're inviting you to listen to our podcast, Walking Back, Walking Forward, the UN Trafficking Protocol at 20, 
You can find the link to our podcast in the description of this Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities episode. Thanks. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities, a podcast series about women's labor migration between South Asia and the Middle East. Our guest is Dr. Belisha Veera Ratne from the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka. Let me just ask one last question that if you have to give some key recommendations to the Sri Lankan government, what would they be regarding remittances and social security? Uh, regarding social security, it will be to uh, now there have been planned for many years and now there is uh, a lot of momentum to it. So they have to follow through and make sure that there is a, pension, a contributory pension scheme. There might be challenges, uh, but somehow I did by the bottlenecks and make it into an implementation stage. About remittances, um, I think right now, whatever the incentives introduced for remittances, as per my surveys, what I have heard from the migrants overseas and returning was that they were not much of uh, incentive to their migrant workers, the broader migrant workers, because it was like a uh, 2% increase in interest for the special deposit account, which was mostly taken up by uh, diaspora members who can send large amounts of millions of uh, remittances. So we have to focus on these temporary migrant workers who make regular monthly contributions to the Sri Lanka, Sri Lankan economy, so that they will be motivated to send more money, not only to motivate them to send more money, but also to make it easier for them to send money. Because if we are relying on them, we have to give them a good service and make it easy for them to remit from there to access it back in the country of, I mean, back at home in Sri Lanka. There has to be some uh, more incentives targeting this uh, lower level of remitters who are sending small but regular amounts of remittances to Sri Lanka because uh, they might not be looking at this special deposit account. They might want some other mechanisms that will benefit them when they regularly send the money. So that these nuances have to be identified to improve Allow me to sum up our conversation, Belisha. You have spoken about the importance of remittances at the micro level, its impact on the household, and at the macro level, its impact on the economy. You also pointed out that countries of destinations do not have longer commitments towards migrant workers, and that cooperation is needed between countries of origin and destination. This is Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. In our next episode, we will be speaking with Igor Bosk of the Work and Freedom Program of the International Labour Organization. Thank you for listening to Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities. We love to hear your feedback. You can send us an email at gaadw at gaadw.org. Until then, I'm Namrata Daniel. Take care and stay well. Migrant Rights, Migrant Realities is created by Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. It's produced by Chris Santo Domingo and edited by Norman Bugwisa. Check out the episode description for credits to the copyright-free music. Special thanks to Sharmila Parmanan, Bobby Gerasimov, Ratna Matai Luke, and the guest for this episode, Bielisha Weera Ratni, of the Institute of Policy Studies of Sri Lanka.